children are in expectation of those presents on Christmas morning. We also think of Mary, right? Expecting a child, expecting Jesus to be born. We think of the expectation that all of creation held as they awaited with groanings of anticipation for Christ, the Rescuer, the Redeemer, the One who would make all things new to enter into creation. Now, I've been paralleling this idea of expectation uh, these past several Sundays, or at least the two Sundays I've been here this month. Um, sorry about that. I had a little thing in New Orleans last week, but, uh, but I do appreciate you letting me be gone. I appreciate Tim Batchelor coming and preaching and doing such a great job last week. But, but on, uh, on the hanging of the green service and then the week on peace, we talked about Abraham and Sarah, their hope for Isaac, the promised child that was born to them. We, we looked at, uh, at Isaac and Rebekah's two sons, Jacob and Esau, and the fact that they, even before they were born, they were at war with each other. We focused on peace and the fact that peace finally came between them as they were reconciled. And yet there's another miraculous birth in Genesis. Because you may remember that Jacob had two wives, and two concubines, and a whole house full of kids, right? Twelve in number. And, and, you know, of all of those, you know, he had ten children with Leah and the two concubines. But Rachel, the love of his life, to him the most beautiful woman in all of the world, could not conceive. And so after years of grief and shame and prayer, God finally answered their prayers and gave her two children, Joseph and Benjamin. So before we turn fully to the story of Christ's birth this morning, I want to use Joseph as one final illustration from Genesis, as one final ancient patriarch pointing like an arrow to the coming of Christ. You may remember Joseph, because he was Rachel's firstborn, was Jacob's favorite. Jacob gifted him with a a royal robe, a robe of many colors. And, And God also gifted Joseph with something, with the ability to interpret dreams. And in some of those dreams, Joseph foretold how his own family would someday bow down before him and he would rule and he would reign. And of course, this made his ten older brothers jealous. In fact, they grew to hate him and they rejected him. And eventually, for a handful of silver coins, they betrayed him. Joseph ended up a slave in Egypt. But through his integrity and God's faithfulness, he became chief of all of the house of Potiphar, the the high-ranking Egyptian official that owned him. And through no fault of his own, then Joseph kind of hit the bottom of the barrel again. He went to prison. But even in prison, God was faithful. He was a man of integrity. He grew to become the, the, the prisoner that was in charge of all the other prisoners. And it was through that experience that his ability to interpret dreams landed him in front of Pharaoh where he told Pharaoh the meaning of a dream, that there was a famine that was coming. And then Joseph went further and suggested a course of action to prepare the kingdom for the coming famine. And Pharaoh liked what he heard and put Joseph in charge of it. And Joseph became second in command of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. Now, here's where the story gets interesting. I mean, all that's interesting, right? Fascinating. Here's where it really gets interesting. The famine, you see, it hit Joseph's family back in Palestine. And so... The ten brothers make their journey to Egypt to get grain, and they find themselves bowing down before Joseph. Joseph's dream was coming true. They didn't know this was their long-lost brother. 
This wasn't, they didn't know this was the brother they hated and they betrayed and they sold into slavery and they convinced their father he'd been killed by wild animals. Yet here they were fulfilling Joseph's dream. Now let's jump to the end here, okay? Joseph puts his brothers to some tests and some different things go back and forth. He's not just trying to get back at them. He's not just, you know, playing with them. He really wants to test and see have they changed. Are they remorseful? Would they betray another one of their brothers? How are they treating his full brother Benjamin, Rachel's other son? He wants to know these things, and they they prove faithful to their brother. They, They do show that they are remorseful for what they did to Joseph. And so at a dinner that he throws in their honor, Joseph reveals himself. And of course, his brothers are shocked and dismayed. They're fearful. Here is the brother they mistreated, literally holding their lives in his hand. They had every right to expect that Joseph could condemn them. He could put them in prison. He could execute them on the spot and no one would say a word. And they were hopelessly powerless. They were in his hands. Listen to what Joseph says to them in Genesis chapter 45. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who sold you into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. And so he sends them back to bring his father. He he promises to give them a land to live in, food to eat. Now, later on, after Jacob dies, his brothers kind of get worried. Oh, now that dad's gone, what's Joseph going to do to us? But listen again to what Joseph says in Genesis 50, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. I'm not really sure that Jacob ever really told them that, but it's a good story, isn't it? You know, it's like, Daddy said you better forgive us and treat us right. And his brothers then came, threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The point is this. Joseph was a picture of Jesus. Joseph's brothers had sinned against him. He had every right to repay them for their wickedness. They, had, they, they were powerless to do anything about their situation. They deserved judgment and death. But Joseph didn't give them what they deserved. He gave them something his brothers had no right to expect from him. Grace. Mercy, forgiveness, a fresh start. He gave them His love. The same is true for us. We have betrayed Jesus. We have rebelled against Him. By our sins, we put Him to death. 
We deserve judgment. We deserve eternal death. But Jesus doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we have no right to expect from Him. He gives us grace, mercy, forgiveness, a fresh start. He gives us His love. And that's what Christmas is all about. The undeserved love of God demonstrated toward all mankind. Now, it's been suggested, I hope that on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, that that when you have your family gathering, you will read some of the nativity story from either Matthew or from Luke. But when you do that, I want you to notice something. Nowhere in either of those accounts will you ever read the word love. The word love doesn't appear in Luke 1 and 2 or Matthew 1 and 2. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Because love is such an important word, right? It's an important word in the Bible. It's an important word to us. Of course, love is overused in our culture. We love everything from mama to her apple pie. So for us, the word love has lost some of its power. But really, you'd be surprised at how infrequently the word love appears in the Bible. Okay, so depending on your translation, the English word love only appears, again, depending on the translation, between 530 and 840 times in the whole Bible. The New American Standard Bible is the most literal, close to the Greek and Hebrew translation. It's only 530 times in the New American Standard Bible. That's not as much as you would think, is it? Considering how many words are in the Bible and considering how important love is and considering how words like death, kill, judge are in the Bible more than the word love. Now, what's that mean? Well, it means that since the Bible writers used love so judiciously, when they do use it, we should pay attention. We should zone in and really focus on what they're trying to tell us. Now, the author who used love far more than any others was John the Beloved. He used love 117 times in his writings. Of course, his most famous use of love is John 3.16, right? But I want us to look at what he wrote in 1 John 3.16 to better help us understand what love is. In 1 John 3.16, John says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John is telling us right up at the front of this verse, you want to know what love is? Here's two ways to know. The first way to know what love is, is Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. Reminds me of a parable I heard about a king who had three daughters. And the three daughters wanted to express to their dad, the king, how much they loved him. And the first two said, I love you more than all the gold and all the silver in the world. And that pleased them. The third daughter said, I love you better than salt. He was a little less exuberant about that one. What did that mean? He kind of chalked it up to the immaturity of his daughter. Well, the cook overhearing this, realizing the king didn't understand what she was saying, decided the next morning to leave the salt out of the king's scrambled eggs. And out of his grits. There you go. Then the king understood the daughter's declaration. What she was saying was, I love you so much that nothing is good without you. That's what she was saying. The Christmas story 
in the person of Jesus Christ, what God is declaring is that I would rather be incarnate in human flesh. I would rather suffer unjustly at the hands of men. I would rather be tortured and die on a cross and bear all the wrath of sin that we deserve than spend eternity without you. I love you that much. How much does God love you? He loves you more than you could love your spouse. He loves you more than you could love your children. He loves you more than you could love your parents or your grandparents or your siblings or your best friend. It's like that little game you play with your children where you say, how much do I love you? I love you this much. And not to be flippant, but there's no other means of execution by which a man holds his arms out as if he's ready to embrace the world. That's how much God loves you. And we will never fully appreciate the gift that's swaddled in cloths and lying in that manger if we cannot look at it through the lens of the cross. He was born to die. So where do you find love in Christmas? Well, you won't find the Word in the Gospel Nativity accounts. We can certainly see God's love demonstrated in the events. As 1 John 4, 9-10 through 10 so beautifully says, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Amen? Now, it does beg the question, why the word love is conspicuously absent from the nativity accounts. I mean, it would just be so easy for Matthew or Luke to just say something in there about love. And if it isn't to be found in the story of God's interest into the world, then where do we find it? And where do we find it first used? See, there's a principle in biblical interpretation to look at the first occurrence of a word. Now, that may not be as big a deal to us, but in ancient cultures, a word or idea's first appearance carried a great significance. Sort of like when you're watching a TV show or a movie and a character makes their entrance to the scene, right? Sometimes with their own theme music, right? I mean, those of you who saw Star Wars this past weekend like I did, I don't want to spoil anything. I'm not going to say anything about it. But there are certain characters that appear that you're not expecting. And what happens when they show up? Dun, 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 dun. You know, the, the music. So what we do with characters in a movie, the ancient writers did with words. So when, when a word first appears in Genesis, it means something. It's like, da-da-da, here it is. Pay attention to this. The first occurrence of love in all the Bible is Genesis 22-2. God is speaking to Abraham and says... Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now, the Hebrew word here is ahab. It's the equivalent to the Greek words in the New Testament, agape and phileo. So when you think of love in the Bible... That's what you're thinking of. You're thinking of agape love. That's God's love for us. Thinking of that phileo love, that, that friendship, that brotherly love. That's what this word ahab in Genesis 22.2 means. So keeping in mind that the word for love in Genesis 22 is essentially the same word used for love in the New Testament, it's interesting to note when the Gospels first used the word love. The first occurrence 
In Matthew, Mark, and Luke of love, it's the same account in all three Gospels. It's after Jesus has been baptized and God the Father speaks. So I just want to read it to you from Luke's account. Luke 3.22 And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Anyone want to take a guess? The first appearance of love in John's Gospel. Anybody? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. So let's think about this for just a minute. The first time we see love in the Bible is God telling Abraham to go up onto a mountain and sacrifice his son, the son of the promise, the son whom he loves. The first occurrence in the synoptic gospels of love, God is presenting to the world his one and only son, the son of the promise, the son whom he loves, to be a sacrifice for the world. And John, in John 3.16, gives us the reason. Why would God the Father present the Son whom He loves to be a sacrifice for the world? Because God so loves us. He loves us all. This is beyond coincidence. This is divine orchestration. Through the writers of Scripture, God is telling us something about Himself, about Jesus, about His love for us. Now let's go back to the Christmas story especially to those shepherds that the angels come and sing to. How did those shepherds hear love in the angels' message? How did they see love when they arrived at the stable? Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. How would the shepherds even know they had found this amazing child? What was the sign the angels chose to give them? It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were sorely afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, that's Bethlehem. It's nearby. They're in the fields around Bethlehem. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. What a curious sign. That they had found a Savior born to redeem the world. A sign that said He's going to be wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Now naturally the shepherds were amazed. They were curious. They were compelled to go and and see this for themselves. That's what they said in verse 15. Look in verse 15. It says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Why? What was it about the angels' message that got their attention and made them hurry off to see it? I mean, beside the obvious fact that it was a host of angels telling them, right? I mean, that, that alone is enough to get your attention to make you curious. But it's the significance of the sign. How is a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, how or why is that a sign that a mighty Savior has been born? We have to understand these were not ordinary shepherds tending sheep. 
Okay, this wasn't so that somebody could have some mutton for lunch the next day. They tended flocks in Bethlehem. All the flocks of sheep in Bethlehem were raised for one purpose. You know what that was? To be sacrificed in the temple. Now, sacrificial lambs were special lambs. They were born to die. They had to be without spot or blemish, which means they couldn't have any broken bones. They couldn't have any visible defects. They couldn't have any injuries. And if they had any defect or injury, if they were imperfect in any way, they couldn't be used for sacrifice, and so they would be killed immediately and counted as a business loss. So to ensure that these spotless lambs stayed that way, especially in those first few days of life when their legs were still spindly and they were unsure of themselves, they were weak, the shepherds would take those lambs and they would swaddle them in cloths and they would lay them out of harm's way in the feeding trough so they wouldn't get trampled by the other sheep. So in one way, the scene laid out before the shepherds that night was a common seen to them, a newborn, swaddled in cloth, lying in a manger. What was different? What was scandalous even? Is this wasn't a lamb for sacrifice that was swaddled in that manger. No, this was a tiny baby boy. These shepherds recognized the shocking symbolism. This baby was born to die. This baby was himself a sacrificial lamb. 1 John 3, 1, John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Why? That we should be called children of God. Jesus said of Himself in John 10, 10 10-11, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. So you see, Jesus is both God's sacrificial Lamb and our Good Shepherd. He came to willingly die in our place that we might have abundant and eternal life as the sons and daughters of God. That is love. You want to know what love is? You want to know whether God loves you? Look at that baby in the manger. Look at that man on the cross. Look at that empty tomb. That is love. That is God's love for you. But there's a follow-up here in 1 John 3.16. Jesus not only makes it possible for us to know love, but also for us to show love. See, not only is it that Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, but secondly, He says we ought to lay down our lives for each other. You see, love received is a beautiful thing, but love given, that's the stuff that changes the world. And Jesus enables us to give to others that same kind of love. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 John. And just listen or follow along in your Scripture. I just want to read you just a few quick passages about this. 1 John, beginning uh, chapter 3, verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, 
How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And then look at chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world, that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And His love is made complete in us. And then jump down to verse 19. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, even the world acknowledges at this time of year the value and the importance of giving to the poor, the needy, the destitute. I mean, just watch any of the hundreds of versions of A Christmas Carol. Look at the bell ringers outside the stores. Look at all the Toys for Tots boxes. But giving to meet others' needs isn't just a seasonal emphasis, is it? As a follower of Jesus Christ, it should be our way of life. We cannot say that we love God if we are not showing love to those around us. Once again, we can find great significance in the priority of how love is used in the Gospels. We've already seen that the first mentions of love concern God's love for Jesus and for the world. Right? When He spoke to Jesus after His baptism, John 3.16. So the first time we see love in the Gospels, it's God's love for us, the world, for His Son, Jesus He gave to save the world. The next few times we read love in the Gospels, it relates to how we love others. For example... The next six mentions of love in Matthew are the Sermon on the Mount, dealing with how we are to love other people, specifically how we are to love our enemies. So, God's love for us, our love for others, it's not until you get towards the end of the Gospels that you begin to read anything about our love for God. Now, why is that? Remember, the Gospels were written and Jesus is speaking to a very religious culture. These Jewish people believed that they loved God. They believed they loved God well. Why? Well, because they kept the Sabbath and the feast days. They didn't touch unclean things. They gave their tithes and their offerings. They observed the Passover. It's pretty easy for us to convince ourselves that we're good Christians that love God, isn't it? I'm a good person. I go to church. I put money in the offering plate. I might even go to Sunday school and read my Bible on occasion. But we may not really believe or feel like God loves us. Much less our neighbors and our enemies. And we certainly fall down to loving them ourselves, don't we? See, we can convince ourselves of how much we love God. But there's no fooling whether or not we really love our neighbors. There's no fooling whether we really love our enemies. And that's why John makes it plain that God loved us first. 
And that God loves everyone. Guess what? God loves everyone as much as He loves you. I saw a t-shirt that said, Jesus loves you, but He likes me best. That's not true. Jesus loves and likes everyone as much as He does you. Remember that. John tells us that we cannot say we love a God we cannot see if we're not able to love our brothers and sisters, our neighbors, even our enemies whom we can see. In fact, John argues that if we don't love those around us, then God's love doesn't really live in us. See, loving God isn't about going through the motions and being religious. It's not about the occasional charitable act. According to 1 John 5, 2, and 3, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. Jesus says in John 10, 4, that His sheep follow Him because they know His voice. If we are Jesus' sheep, we know His voice. We follow His voice. We answer His call. We obey His commands. And in so doing, we express our love to God and to a world in great need of that love. I pray that this next year, 2020, as a church family, we will not only receive and enjoy the love that God lavishly pours out upon us, but I pray that we would commit to lavish Him with our love by regularly worshiping together with His people, by reading His Word and praying to Him every day, By faithfully giving our tithes and our offerings. Will you commit to that? Will you commit in 2020 to love each other? To love each other through being a part of a small group that studies God's Word together, that fellowships and prays together, that serves to meet each other's needs. I hope that you will. And I hope that next year you'll commit with me to lavish love on a lost and dying world through your giving, through your praying, and through your going to serve others and to tell them about the Jesus who loves them so much. Would you help our church 24-7, 365 to shine the light of hope and peace and joy and love to a world lost in darkness? Will you help us reach our neighbors and the nations for Jesus Christ? I hope that you will. But this morning, if you have not experienced the gift of God's love for yourself, you can't share it with others. If you don't know the light of Christ in your heart, you can't shine it. Maybe today is the day you need to come and receive that wonderful gift. And you know, it's just like Joseph and his brothers. There was nothing his brothers could do to earn Joseph's love or forgiveness. They were powerless. But Joseph freely gave them his love. And he forgave them. That's what Jesus offers each of us. If you don't know that love, if you have any doubt about whether you know that love, I invite you to come as we stand and sing in just a second and give your life to Christ. Receive that gift that Ben was talking about, the greatest gift you'll ever know. Maybe God is speaking to your heart in other ways, whatever He is saying to you. Let's stand and pray together and you respond. Father, thank You for Your amazing love, the love that You have truly lavished upon us, that You have demonstrated for us through that manger, that cross, and that empty tomb. God, forgive us for when we take that love for granted. Forgive us for when we hoard your blessings and gifts to ourselves. Forgive us for not also laying down our lives for others. Maybe not in a literal, physical sense, but by 
prioritizing others' needs above our own, by sacrificing our wants and our comforts to minister to someone else in Jesus' name. Forgive us and help us truly to commit ourselves next year to loving you, to loving each other, to loving this world in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray.